0: I was once asked an interesting question. The question was asked to me, if you were in prison and you could only have one of the 66 books of the Bible, which book of the Bible would you pick? (laughs) Well, that's a very difficult question because I love all 66 books like you do. But when I thought about that, I think I would like the epistle to the Romans. I think I would like the epistle to the Romans because I love the doctrine that is presented in that particular New Testament book. That book would remind me in prison of the doctrine of God's justification, sanctification, and glorification. That would be chapters 1 through 8 of the book of Romans. Romans would also remind me in prison of the doctrine of God's sovereignty covered by chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. And then Romans would go on to remind me that There are certain Christian duties in response to all this work that God has done in justifying, sanctifying, glorifying, and uh, giving us responsibilities as we walk with him. As I moved off of that question, which one book of the Bible would I choose to have with me in prison if I had to only have one, I moved to a second question in my mind as I prepared this sermon. The question was this, if I could only preach one more time, on Bible doctrine, which Bible doctrines would I preach on in a one final sermon on Bible doctrine? And as I prayed and thought about that, I came up with six doctrines that I want to share with you in an overview fashion. Admittedly, we won't develop the richness of any one of these six doctrines as fully as we could and should, but I want to overview six doctrines that if I only had this chance left in my lifetime to preach on Bible doctrine, that I think these are essential for us to consider and to understand. Let me overview the six and then we'll go through them one by one. The doctrines I want to share with you as being most important in my estimation, the doctrine of inspiration, the doctrine of grace, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of redemption, the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of eternal security. So very briefly in overview fashion, let's look at these six doctrines together. The first doctrine, inspiration. This is defined as follows. Inspiration is this. God's work of superintending the human authors of the Bible so that using their own personalities, they composed and recorded without error in the words of the original autographs his revelation to mankind. This divine superintending extended to the actual words, we call that verbal inspiration, and to all of the words in the Bible, that's plenary inspiration. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we are told that all scripture is given by inspiration. The Greek word there is God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The Bibles that you hold in your hands, the Bible verses you have hidden in your hearts through scripture memorization, they are inspired of God. They are God-breathed. Now, logically, I start with the doctrine of inspiration because The Bible reveals the other five doctrines I'm going to share this morning, and we need to know and believe that what the Bible says about these other five doctrines that I'm going to share is truth. Not human opinion, but God-breathed truth. God-breathed truth that is dependable, that is instructional, that is for our good and correction where necessary and that will yield in us as we believe it and as we live it, righteousness. So that's the first doctrine, inspiration. The second doctrine I want to touch down upon is grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, John Newton penned in his famous hymn. Grace, here's the definition God's work of extending favor on undeserving mankind. That's grace. God's work of extending his favor on undeserving mankind. Some people say in the acrostic of grace, the G is God's, our riches, A, at, C, Christ's, E, expense. God's riches at Christ's expense, grace. God's work of granting favor on undeserving mankind. Recently, we spoke of common grace, that God sends rain and crops and family and marriage to all people. But saving grace is God sending us Christ. And in Christ's finished work on the cross, God giving us the gift, the grace gift of forgiveness in heaven one day. Grace is a precious doctrine. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you know from memory perhaps. For by grace, getting the good you don't deserve, the unmerited favor from God that you don't deserve. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That's grace. The gift of God, not of works. So that no one will boast, heaven will be a no-boasting zone. (laughs) No one will boast of any personal accomplishments in heaven. God will have none of that. We are all will be in heaven because of His grace. None of us merit heaven by our good works. We're not good enough to merit heaven. Some people say. I think that I'm not good enough to trust Christ for salvation. I said, I know I'm bad enough that I need to trust Christ for salvation. The grace of God. British college professor C.S. Lewis, who was converted later in his life, came into a middle of a robust academic discussion one day on what distinguished various world religions from each other. The scholars were talking about what is unique, particularly about Christianity compared to the other world religions known to man. And Lewis immediately said, Oh, that's easy grace. And Lewis was right. In every other world religion, save biblical Christianity, there is no grace. Only in biblical Christianity do we see a God in love and kindness extending to undeserving folks, which is all of us, grace and hope for salvation in his precious son and his finished work on the cross. All other world religions are climbing. They're trying to climb their way to God, like at the Tower of Babel that God judged with diverse and confusing languages in the book of Genesis. Every other world religion is climbing the rungs of human merit and effort to try to be acceptable to the gods they believe in. It is only Christianity who says the first Christmas that God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, was born of the Virgin and came to earth. God came down that ladder, as it were, to us to make it possible by grace for us to go back up the ladder carried by Christ. Third doctrine, justification. God's work of grace in declaring The believer in Jesus righteous. Justification is God, by his grace, declaring you to be righteous because you are in Christ. God's work of grace is declaring the believer righteous when he justifies us. This work includes two parts. This justification work includes God pardoning the believer from guilt That's one part of it. And equally, justification is God's work of God imputing to our accounts Christ's righteousness. So justification is God declaring the believer in his son righteous by pardoning our iniquities and our sins for Jesus' sake and by crediting, imputing to our accounts the righteousness of Christ. So this morning... If you know the Lord is Savior, you are robed in Christ's righteousness in the mind of God the Father. And his mind is the mind that counts. You are robed in Christ's righteousness if you've trusted Jesus alone to be your Savior from sin. Because of justification, God looks at you and says, Billy or Katie, you are declared righteous. Why? Because my son, the father says, my son shed his blood to cover your sins, to forgive you of your sins. But that's not all. You not only are no longer guilty before me because of Christ's blood, but you've also been credited with Christ's righteousness. Isn't that marvelous? It is a subtraction and an addition. Justification is a subtraction of our guilt and an addition. Of Christ's righteousness. So marvelous. All achieved, all achieved by the grace of God when Jesus Christ drank that cup of God's wrath as he bore your sins and mine on the cross. And he prayed in Gethsemane before the cross if it's possible, Father, take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. In his humanity, in Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus didn't want to go through what he knew he was going to have to go through. But in his divinity, he yielded full obedience, loyalty, love to his heavenly Father and went to that cross for you and for me. And the Lord's Supper, of course, remembers that sacrifice in a few moments. Now, some people say or understand that justification is just as if You haven't sinned. That's not theologically right. Justification is not just as if I haven't sinned. The truth is, you and I have sinned, but the Lord Jesus hasn't. And he has paid for our sins with his blood. And now we, in a tremendous gracious act, we are robed, clothed in Christ's righteousness subtraction of guilt, addition of righteousness, justification. Romans 3, 21 to 26. Listen to what these verses say about this justification. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. (laughs) Wow. Romans 1 through the first part of chapter 3 goes to great length to say that we are unrighteous and sinners And if it stopped there, we'd be hopeless. But the second part, the latter part of chapter 3, reveals this wonderful truth that God can be both just, true to his character of holiness, and the justifier of those of us who are not holy in and of ourselves. And that was done, as I read the verse, through faith in Christ through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ's shed blood was a propitiation, a theological word for a satisfactory payment for sin. And when that happened, all of that happened, and you came into Christ by saving faith at the points of your conversion, you were justified. Not a process, a point in time. God says, I declare you innocent. I take and expunge away your guilt of your sin because Jesus' blood paid for it, and I add to your account the righteous perfection of Christ. Praise God. Justification. Doctrine, chapter four. Doctrine, fourth point. Redemption. Redemption. What is redemption? We say we are redeemed, and we are if we trust the Lord to be our Savior. We're a redeemed people. What does that mean? What does it mean to be redeemed? What is this doctrine of redemption? Redemption, to define it, is God's work of forever purchasing a sinner out of the slave marketplace of sin to set that person free to do the bidding and the will of God is expressed in the character of Christ and in the Word of God. Redemption is God coming into the slave marketplace of sin and finding us, purchasing us out of the slave marketplace of sin, not with corruptible things like silver and gold, 1 Peter 1, but with the precious blood of Christ. You are on the slave block. Like Gomer, the prophet Hosea's wife, in prostitution on the slave block. And God had Gomer go into the slave marketplace and redeem, purchase his own wife out of sexual slavery to bring her back into covenant relationship with him as her husband and to have a clean, forgiven way of life the rest of her days. Redemption is God coming into the slave marketplace of sin where you and I were on the save block. When when Satan said, do this or that, we said, yes. We were slaves to sin, slaves to our flesh. But God in Christ came into that slave marketplace of sin and laid down the purchase price to free us from slavery, the precious blood of Christ. Redemption is God's work. It's a forever work of purchasing a sinner out of the slave marketplace of sin by paying the purchase price of Christ's life's blood. And that purchase price of Christ's life blood is a propitiation, as I just said a moment ago, a satisfactory payment. How do you know, how do I know that Christ's blood was a satisfactory propitiation to pay for my sin debt to holy God? Because God raised his son to life after crucifixion, Romans 4, 25. But he was delivered up to crucifixion because of our transgressions. He was raised because of our justification. Oh, the work of God in redemption. Now, I want to take you to Revelation 5, verse 9. And as we go to Revelation 5, verse 9, the scene is the future scene in heaven, And it's at the future time when down on earth, tribulation judgments will take place. Chapters four through 19 of the book of Revelation is the depiction and the prediction of what that tribulation on earth will be like. But there'll be something going on in heaven while the tribulation judgments of God are going on on earth. And Revelation 5, 9 tells us what will be happening in heaven. And they sang, that is the redeemed, and they sang a new song saying to Christ, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have, watch it, have redeemed us to God by your blood and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. What a scene. The redeemed of the globe, those who came to saving faith in Christ during the church age that began on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and ends on the day of the rapture of the church predicted in 1 Thessalonians 4, those of us who have lived and known a full and complete Bible and have come to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be in glory because of the rapture before the tribulation events take place on earth and will be in that choir. And we'll be singing a new song saying to Christ, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Glory to God for redemption. It's future that we will focus on our redemption in heaven to worship Christ, but right here and now, we are the redeemed who are to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, with our lips and with our lives, with our words and with our lifestyles. The redeemed will be worshiping Christ during the tribulation in heaven, but right now the redeemed are to be worshiping Christ and glorifying Christ here on earth. 1 Corinthians 6.20. For you, now remember, (laughs) Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the first letter to the church at Corinth, and they were a messed up church. A man was sleeping with his stepmother. They were taking each other to court, civil litigation. They were drunk at the Lord's Supper. It was a messed up church. But God said to the Corinthian believers, and by extension, he says to us this morning, 1 Corinthians 6:20, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. You thought about that? That redemption, purchasing out of the slave marketplace of sin, means that you no longer own yourself. You no longer own your spirit. You no longer own your body. Christ has purchased you, and you are his. He owns you. And what a lovely, merciful, loving owner he is. And so we're to glorify God, not waiting for the song of the new choir in heaven during the tribulation on earth, but right now, we're to glorify God with our bodies. Right now, keeping ourselves pure before we're married, keeping ourselves in covenantal faithfulness and fidelity to our spouses if we are married, transacting business with honesty and integrity, being men and women of our word that when we make a promise, we keep it. Praying for our leaders, praying for the peace of Jerusalem, etc. The will of God is recorded in the Word of God. Glorify God with your body. Redeemed means bought, and bought means an obligation to glorify the one who's bought us. Now let's move on from. Let's move on from redemption to sanctification. Sanctification, generally speaking, is God's work of setting us apart from the world view that cheerfully leaves Jesus Christ out of everything, setting us apart from our flesh and all that it lusts to do. God's work, sanctification, setting us apart for his possession and his use. There are three aspects to sanctification, all God's doing. There is the work of positional sanctification, which is God setting us apart from the penalty of sin. There is practical sanctification. That is the believer being set apart from the power of sin. That's an ongoing process. And then perfect sanctification is the believer one day forever being set apart from the presence of sin in heaven. It's all the workings of God to set us apart for his possession and use. There's a sense in which that setting apart is already accomplished with respect to the penalty of sin. We've been set apart from that. There's a sense in which that setting apart is in process, underway, still under construction, being set apart from the power of sin. And one day, there's a sense in which... The sanctification work of God is future until we see Christ face to face and then we're delivered in heaven from even the presence of sin. Let me share with you some verses. First on on, uh, positional sanctification. This has already happened if you're saved. It's your history. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. To the Corinthians, messed up church. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. I told you before that my parents, growing up, my parents entertained in our home, their friends often, and when company was coming, you knew company was coming because there was a flurry of activity in our house, and one of the things my mother did before company arrived was she took down the regular towels that the family used, and she put up these fancy guest hand towels in the restrooms, and those towels were set apart for the company's possession and use And woe was the children. If we used the company's hand towels, the wrath of mother would come down upon us. You have been set apart for God's possession and use. It's already happened positionally in the mind of God, the one who has set you apart. It's already happened. But there's a sense in which that reality has to be worked out. It has to be lived out moment to moment, hour to hour, day by day, week by week, month by month, etc. It has to be worked out. It's a battle. The process of God setting us apart from the power of sin is ongoing. I'm still fighting that battle, and so are all of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Romans 7, 18 to 25. Now, some people believe that the verses I'm about to read to you were Paul before the road to Damascus, before he was converted. But that makes no sense. The argument, the the progression of truth in Romans would be out of order because chapter 5 is justification. Chapter 6 is justification. Chapter 7, going back to pre-Christ, no. Chapter 8, glorification. So I believe firmly that chapter 7 was the Apostle Paul's experience after he was saved. And therefore, I believe that Romans 7 speaks to our experiences after we've been saved. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the process where all... Having done to us, for us, by God, who saved us, of setting us apart, increment by increment, day by day, instance by instance, temptation by temptation, setting us apart from the power of the law of sin and death. Listen to Romans 7, the struggle that Paul had, and it's our struggle. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Hear the battle, hear the struggle, the civil war inside the Apostle Paul, verse 21. I find then a law that is evil is present within me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but... I see another law in my members, in my mind, in my hands, in my feet, in my heart, in my mouth. I see another law operating in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. He's not fully sanctified in his experience yet, and neither are we. It's a battle. It's a fight. We fall down and mess up. We confess our sin, accept forgiveness from God, stand up and walk in the spirit again until we fall down again. Hopefully as we grow old in Christ, we fall down in sinful failure less and less. But until we see Christ and our sanctification is complete and perfect, we are going to fall down from time to time in sin. It's the battle. Positionally, we're already set apart for God's possession and use. The hand towels for the company. Positionally, That's true, but practically, I'm working that out with the Holy Spirit. And sometimes in moments, the Holy Spirit controls me and the fruit of the Spirit is exhibited in my life to God's glory. Other times, I I recede and uh, revert to my flesh and I'm capable of any sin as are each of you. By the way, the moment you think you're incapable of a certain sin is probably the most dangerous place you could ever be in the Christian life. All of us are capable of any sin, all of us. Positional sanctification, already accomplished. The hand towels. Practical sanctification, ongoing. A battle. The power of sin is still battling with the Holy Spirit. My father and grandfather, I've told you before, were funeral directors in Toronto, and they buried many an alcoholic. And in the funeral home, when the alcoholic's body was in the casket in the visitation room of the funeral home, my dad or granddad could have put a bottle of rum on the lid of that casket, and the corpse wouldn't have moved one inch toward the rum. Why? Because he was dead. But when he was alive, his addiction was such he couldn't stay away from the bottle of rum. We have a practical, ongoing battle as to whether we're going to let the Holy Spirit set us apart for God's possession and use in our practice, in our actual living Romans 7, positional, done, practical, underway, perfect sanctification, future, yet to come. Perfect sanctification is that glorious prospect that one day the believer in Christ will forever be set apart from the presence of sin in heaven. Aren't you looking forward to that? Oh man, 1 John 3, 2, beloved believers, beloved We are now children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, Christ, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. You are going to see the Lord Jesus Christ literally, either through the rapture of the church or through your physical deaths. But whenever you do see the Lord Jesus Christ literally, you will be completely and perfectly sanctified, no longer contending with your flesh, no longer contending with ambient surrounding pressure to sin that we all live in right now. I often think about it when I come to church in the mornings that I have this set of keys with me. And i got to sort through which key is for the deadbolt, which key is for the doorknob to the parking lot, which, which key is for the door into the general office, and which key is to the door of my office. And I often think to myself, I'm looking forward to perfect sanctification in heaven when there's no locks, no need for them, no security companies or guards, no sin, no confession of sin necessary because we won't sin, no temptations to sin, and no devil anywhere in sight in heaven. I'm looking forward to that. Sanctification, God's work of setting believers in his son apart for his possession and use, positional, practical, and perfect. Before I move off of sanctification, listen to this benediction. Now to him, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless in Christ before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. What a prospect. And as you leave this service to go into the muddied and sullied and dirty world that we live in, morally, you are robed in Christ's righteousness, justified, and you're being sanctified. The last doctrine, but far from the least, is eternal security. Eternal security is God's work which guarantees that the gift of salvation once received is forever and cannot be lost. Some say it, once saved, always saved. Our church believes that, that the scriptures teach that. I mean, we can't work to get our salvation, so we can't work to stay saved either. It was grace, unmerited favor toward us that saved us, and grace keeps us safely saved as well. John 10 27 to 30. Jesus' teachings, his words. My sheep, that's you if you're saved, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, never is never. They shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Look here, this is Christ's nail scarred hand. Jesus is saying, if you are trusting him alone for salvation, you're secure in the nail-scarred hand of Christ. He's closed on you, and you're secure, but there's more. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. God the Father figuratively has another hand. Figuratively, he's spirit, so he doesn't literally have a hand. But in Jesus' teaching, Jesus is telling the believer in him that you are doubly secure. You are in the grip of Christ, and the grip of the Father. You have double security. No one can steal you out of that grip, not even yourself, not even yourself. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Maybe you look at it this way. When you trusted Jesus to be your Savior, God the Father had you in his hand, He had selected you for salvation. He had you safely in his hand, and he put you into the nail-scarred hand of Jesus Christ, his son. And now you are safe both in the grip of Christ and in the grip of the Father. And if you follow my hands to my wrists, to my elbows, to my shoulders, to my neck, to my head, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Imagine yourself, though, Imagine yourself to be subject to doctrine that doesn't teach this. Imagine yourself to be adopted into a family. Imagine that your family of origin abused you, so the authorities removed you from that troubled family so that you could be adopted by a loving family. Now imagine, after you've been adopted, That your adoptive parents one day tell you that if you behave badly enough and they don't tell you what the definition of badly enough is, they will disown you and you will go back to your abusive family of origin. Can you imagine how discouraging that would be? Can you imagine how terrorizing that would be? And yet believers in certain churches, that's how they live. They look at their salvation and the love of God. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, but if I don't warrant his love and I sin in some manner that's not specified, because the Bible doesn't specify a manner, if I sin in some way, they believe, that it goes from he loves me to he loves me not. That's schizophrenic salvation. Salvation. Praise God, that's not what the Bible teaches. Now we live a thank you kind of life back to God for the grace of eternal salvation. We never abuse the grace of God. And we can lose reward for abusing the grace of God, but we don't lose our place in God's family. There is a sin unto death mentioned in the New Testament, but it never specifies what the sin unto death is. It's not one particular sin. I personally think that it's a sin unto death that's known to God. Maybe it's individual. Maybe there's a certain sin in your life or mine that if we commit it, God's gonna take us home through physical death. I've seen that happen. I won't go into details. Other pastorates I've had. I've seen that happen, I believe. But it's not, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. No, he loves me. I'm in the hand of Christ, secure, secure, And the Father's hand is over that hand. I'm secure. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. You can say it for all eternity. He loves me. He loves me. Now, (laughs) salvation was a grace gift of God. That's how we got it. And being Kept in that salvation secure is also a grace gift of God. We never could earn salvation. We never can earn security in salvation. They're all gifts of God, both. All right, I hope you noticed something in all six of these doctrines. Did you notice that every definition of all six of these doctrines began with the two words, God's work? God's work. Inspiration is God's work, grace is God's work, justification is God's work, redemption is God's work, sanctification is God's work, and eternal security is God's work. And we respond. (laughs) We respond to God's work with love. We respond to God's work with obedience. We respond to God's work with spiritual maturation. We respond to God's work with worship. We respond to it with continuous Bible study. We respond to the works of God in our lives with surrender to his will. We respond by using our spiritual gifts for the edifying of the body of believers. We respond by sharing our faith with the lost. We respond to all these works of God by progressively, intentionally, Becoming more fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. That's how we respond. We respond by seeking to bring glory to God through our mouths, through our minds, through our hands, through our feet, through our heart's affections, our heart's attitudes our heart's desires. We seek to bring glory to God. You could write a ribbon on the package of all the proper ways to respond to these works of God toward us with we seek to live holy. We seek to live holy, set apart for God's possession and use. As we come to this table, we're remembering how the Lord Jesus, the Holy One, bore all of our sins on himself on the cross. I'm going to pray, and we're going to come to that table together. Lord, how we thank you so much for your work in our lives. The ongoing work that is a present-time work of setting us apart from the power of sin, but all of the other workings of yours that are completed, inspiration, grace, justification, redemption, and eternal security. Lord, as we come now to the table, we pray that we would do so with hearts full of reciprocated love for you, hearts yielded, to your will and purpose for our lives. Mindful that we're no longer our own, we've been bought with a price. Therefore, we should glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.